Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, <clears throat> the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode, Matt and I take a look at the issue of Brexit and Brexit in terms of risks for U.S. companies. We delineate some operational risks, including pharmaceutical products, chemical products, some compliance risks, including internal investigations, data privacy, data protection, but use it as a broader uh, use it as a way to introduce a broader discussion around what are significant business risks, uh, key employee risks, key customer concentration risks, key supplier risks, how internal audit needs to help you evaluate those, and what the SEC has said about all of these things. It's a fascinating exploration of something that is certainly uh, top of the mind in many people's minds right now. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we are going to go on a little bit different journey where we are going to engage in not our regular speculation, but rank speculation, an entirely new level of speculation, because we're going to talk about that most speculative topic, Brexit, and what it might mean for the U.S. compliance practitioner and, indeed, U.S. company going forward. So, Matt, uh, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom, and I am ready to speculate wildly, as I think pretty much all others in the U.S., the U.K., and everywhere else. So, Matt, I'd like to start with a couple of examples that I've been able to identify of, uh, if not problems, at least issues for U.S. companies and in mm-hmm. other companies in uh, the United Kingdom over Brexit. The first one comes from uh, courtesy of my sister-in-law, who is on the business side of a multi-chain pharmaceutical company in southern England. And uh, she is having trouble filling uh, pharmaceutical products in forms of uh, drugs because the pharmaceutical companies themselves are hoarding drugs, uh, not knowing uh, what is going to happen with Brexit. And so that the the pharmacy is having trouble maintaining its stocks, even to drugs that I would think uh, would have thought would not be um, uh, too unique, such as insulin. So um, when you hear those stories about people hoarding food or he, people hoarding medicines, uh, I am afraid those are true. Um, the next one is a uh, U.S. company that uses uh, a wide variety of chemicals in a manufacturing process, both manufacturing and they sell chemicals as well. And they are in a, a last-minute race to physically ship their physical inventory from the United Kingdom to the continent because they don't know uh, after Brexit if they'll be able to ship across uh, the um, hard barrier that will be between at least England and the uh, the continent. Um, 
And so, unfortunately, uh, they've waited till this this last date, uh, late date rather, and even with the extension um, to April 12th, um, they may not be able to to do so. Uh, another example is more from the legal world, um, which would necessarily impact the compliance practitioner, and that's the difference in the attorney-client privilege uh, between the United Kingdom and the EU, uh, the attorney-client privilege in terms of in-house counsel. On the continent, the, an in-house counsel uh, does, is not cloaked or clothed, I suppose, as we would say in Texas, with the attorney-client privilege, and yet under English law, uh, outside the EU, that that protection would exist, so that you could have the anomaly of a uh, English lawyer involved in an in-house uh, internal investigation of someone physically on the continent, or perhaps even uh, telephonically interviewing someone on the continent, and losing your attorney-client privilege uh, in a very, very inadvertent way. Certainly, uh, GDPR has been a topic of uh, many podcasts, and while I would suspect that the UK would maintain a GDPR type law uh, similar to GDPR on the continent. Uh, that's not uh, for certain. Uh, I use all of those specific examples, Matt, as a way of introducing what I would really like to visit with you about today. So Matt, that's uh, a long-winded way of me introducing what I really wanted to visit with you about today. Uh, once again, uh, with our theme of rank speculation, of how does a company prepare for a, either an unknown outcome or perhaps more charitably, an outcome with several different possibilities that may be distinct? So I, um, I think the most honest answer for a lot of firms is we don't know. And it's interesting because what I've been thinking about when I hear Brexit is what companies should be disclosing in their public reports to investors. And even here in the United States, the Securities and Exchange Commission for many months now has been telling investors um, or telling public filers that they need to improve their disclosure of potential Brexit risks. Uh, we heard that from the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, as far back as I want to say September last year. I heard them talk about it in December at an accounting and public uh, reporting conference. And we heard it as recently as earlier this month. Uh, Bill Hinman, the head of division of Corp Fin at the SEC, he was back at it again saying, do more about disclosure. Um, leading to, you know, for the corporate secretaries out there or the corporate securities lawyers who would think about what you disclose, the first thing you have to ask is, well, what's material? It's hard really to say because there are so many moving variables here. Um, one thing, for example, one risk that you did not mention that has been on my mind is key employee risk. And I have heard stories, for example, that a lot of the big banks in London, which is theoretically the financial center of Europe, they have been telling their employees, all right, be prepared now to move to Frankfurt, move to Paris. Um, there was a very funny story. I think it was JP Morgan. It was one of the large US-based investment banks. But there had been this movement that they were telling London employees, we're going to move to Paris. Well, it's worse things in the world than to have to move to Paris, except it turns out it wasn't Paris. It was suburban Paris. So this would be like me telling you we're going to move to New York, but actually I'm going to put you in Yonkers. And um, that was less appealing to people who were used to living in London and the high life. 
And so now these banks are starting to think that they might not have employees who are willing to move to Europe. Um, or if you do have to move, you're going to have to potentially pay them. What if people move to Dublin or Frankfurt or Paris? Uh, what if there is a temporary stall and in theory, maybe people would move back next year? Total mess. Nobody knows about that. Um, I would also think more two other one other risk that I think you touched on with your uh, pharmaceutical person, your sister-in-law. I was thinking more in the financial world, you would be talking about key customer concentration risk and what happens if you would lose a key customer. And along similar lines, your sister-in-law is talking about key supplier risk and what is your what is your concentration risk generally? Is it for whether it's customers or suppliers? But you know, really, might we be disclosing something for a while? But if Brexit resolves itself by June, these disclosures and risk factors go away. Like again, we don't know. Um, I think large companies are straddling two different horns. Here is one are the very practical operational issues. You know, have you audited what your supply chain backup plans are? An internal audit, you know, if they can't do a business continuity risk assessment and audit, like if they can't do that, if they have not been doing that, you really should think about getting new people because that's what they do. It's a prime uh, risk for most enterprises. So I'd be surprised if audit teams either haven't done this or aren't able to do it, but they should be doing it right now for operational issues. But then we get back to, again, what's material? And uh, you know what would you actually disclose to investors in a quarterly report or maybe an 8K filing with the SEC? It's really hard to say. Um, let's all remember, you know, if, if those of us for a certain age, the other big sort of climactic event I was thinking of was in 1999. Everybody was worried about the Y2K bug. What might happen? You know, is there going to be panic? And we had to disclose all this stuff about remediation, and like nothing happened. On 2000, the world had rolled along unchanged. So, you know, I it's very hard for me to kind of figure out what are investors really going to think about and respond to come March 29th or April 12th or May 22nd or whenever the heck, you know, Theresa May and the British Parliament figure out what they want to do here. Um, I don't know that we have good answers, but that's where we are. We've got these operational issues and these disclosure investment issues that I think are going to drive large corporations bonkers. So Matt, one of the things that I've certainly seems to me to be, has been one of the themes you have advocated during this podcast series and certainly far prior to that in your various professional roles is transparency and transparency from corporations in terms of reporting, in terms of financial numbers, uh, in terms of what the Securities Exchange Commission uh, requires. And it, it and I think you've written about Jay Clayton's specific remarks around Brexit as well. Mm-hmm. And it just strikes me that Clayton seems concerned about this, concerned enough to remind the market uh, that you need to advise investors uh, of this risk. Um, and I would have to opine that if Jay Clayton thinks it's important, we should think it's important. Yeah, I agree. And my thinking has evolved a bit on what Jay Clayton and the SEC were originally worried about. Um, I think originally and probably in their heart of hearts, they are foremost worried that there might be some sort of systemic 
financial system risk that might stem out of Brexit that we don't fully grasp. Um, and that, above all, is what all regulators in London, the U.S., or anywhere else, like, we don't want that. We don't want another sort of financial crisis akin to what was triggered with Lehman Brothers in 2008, which you know, really kind of lit a match within a day, and then the, the whole financial markets were burning inside of a week. We don't want that. Um, and I think that that is what Jay Clayton had originally been talking about was more, what is your liquidity risk for financial firms? Um, because finance is such a large part of what goes on with British, British economic activity, like much more proportionally than what New York and Wall Street do with the U.S. economy. Um, but now, so I just called this up here while you were talking, Bill Hinman, he is a sort of point man on corporate disclosure, the head of Corp Thin. He gave a few specific examples in December at a conference I was attending that are much more operational in issue in, um, in their nature and probably do affect a whole lot more companies that are not in finance. So Bill Hinman was saying, think about things like uh, licensing, regulatory approvals for your products, uh, the ability to ship goods hither and yon. And suddenly, you know, that is not the realm of the banks and high finance. That, that's the realm of transport, pharmaceuticals, akin to your sister-in-law, uh, materials, uh, consumer goods. Uh, I can give you one a good example of Brexit disclosure I pulled up. I will only say, I, I qualify it. I don't know if it's good or not, but this is what Mattel, the toy makers, they had to say in October. Um, they were thinking about, okay, British pound, the, the pound sterling might be more volatile. That could affect uh, their cash flows, their currency translations that could affect sales in London, um, where I, they actually broke out how much of their consolidated sales were in the UK, that if it somehow was experiencing dramatic currency changes, that could affect a significant uh, part of Mattel's market. It was 4% of Mattel's global sales come from the UK. That, that's material enough in my book. That's wow. not inconsequential. Um, then on the other hand, I'll give one that I thought was kind of a cop-out from Starbucks. Uh, I can pretty, pretty much read this verbatim. Um, they said this was in, um, I think, December. No, I'm sorry. It was in November. Starbucks had this to say. Uncertainties in the effects of the implementation of the UK referendum to withdraw membership from the European Union, uh, known as Brexit, that might have financial, legal, tax, and trade implications, period. That's, that's the whole thing. And, you know, my four-year-old downstairs could probably make that same disclosure about Brexit. You know, it might be able to affect something. I don't know. It might be on trade, might be on legal, might be on tax, could be a big mess. Um, and this was... Starbucks had disclosed a whole bullet point list of risk factors, like companies always do, but that's all they had to say about Brexit in November when Starbucks has a zillion outlets in London. It has more than a zillion in Europe. I've been there. We've seen them. I would have expected more analysis from Starbucks, you know, some sort of disclosure about, you know, we don't have much material business in the UK relative to the rest of the world. It's not consequential. I don't know if that's true or not, but if you said something like that, that would be fair. Um, this was not very informative. And I think that is what Jay Clayton and the SEC want as much as possible. They want uh, investors to have some sense of possible effects, give some sense of proportion. You know, if you are selling a large number of your goods into the UK, you'd want to 
disclose that because you know maybe there are follow-on sales from the UK into Europe. Maybe there are suppliers or customers that come in from Europe and suddenly they're not getting there. That's the sort of you know more enlightened thinking about disclosure that the SEC would like. And I I honestly I haven't done a close reading of Brexit disclosure speeches through time, but I do think that way back when and they were first thinking, is this going to be financial system risk? And now it's much more just like, is this operational risk? Is there going to be no insulin in the fridge? Um, you know, and now we're down to that. And it's it's a big deal. Matt, you re- uh, mentioned a little bit earlier supply chain risk. And the risk to, uh, I would if I could take that and run with it, the risk to companies who either have suppliers uh, located in the United Kingdom or uh, as a part of their supply chain, something is routed through the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And simply focusing on the transit delays, uh, in addition to the potential transit costs, um, how, how would one go about really assessing uh, a supply chain risk or does it simply turn on the materiality? Well, it's it's both. I mean, from your SEC disclosure perspective, it turns on materiality. And if it's not necessarily material, then you don't have to disclose it. Or you can disclose some boilerplate or something and life goes on. And I think that would be fine. On the other hand, from the operational perspective, if you have some immaterial risk from the financial perspective, perspective, but still could cause some major glitches. Let's say you are shipping through um, pharmaceutical products that have a very short shelf life and they are suddenly expiring while they're trapped on British soil or they can't get into the country. Uh, I could imagine uh, scenarios where your customers might sue you. Now, is that going to be material to the whole stock price and the whole operation? Probably not. Is that going to be a pain in the neck for the legal department? Totally. Um, You know, what if there is enough of that sort of small operational disruption that uh, maybe these people could form some sort of a class? I know that's, you know, class actions are a bit different in Europe and the UK, but, you know, if there were enough suddenly to form some sort of a class action, suddenly that's that's not a small pain in the neck. That's a sharp pain. And you know, you'd have to be thinking through those kind of things. And just the operational risks might translate into uh, litigation issues or regulatory enforcement or you know bad publicity risk, which is always going to be floating around out there, that even if it is not material, even if it doesn't need to be disclosed, it still winds up being an issue that you don't want to deal with because companies have enough headaches as it is, but now we're creating headaches of uncertain severity, and I just wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Well, Matt, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has been a fascinating uh, exploration of rank speculation. So uh, I, I for one, will be watching to see where this goes, and perhaps we may revisit this issue going forward. All right, Tom. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take a look at a compliance or compliance-related topic and take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds to explore this topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.